Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is drug development and the miracle of the COVID-19 vaccine. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so today, our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, is going to talk with us about drug development and the miracle of the COVID-19 vaccine. Tom, there has been an explosion of COVID-19 vaccines. Not just one, but right now as we talk, there's roughly nine out there being administered to people around the world. Several made in the United States, uh, one, a couple made in China, one in Russia, some in England, and they're all over the world as they're being developed. Uh, this explosion is really a miracle because the as we're speaking, uh, the country just locked down about a year ago. And so the uh, right before that, the drug company started working on a vaccine for that. And it was considered to be really far-fetched, almost they were dreaming by uh, in the notion that they could get a vaccine up and ready within, say, a year. I, I'm almost certain that this time last year, they were, people were saying, look, folks, we need to be realistic. It takes three to five years to develop a vaccine. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, people were very um, skeptical of the notion that we could get it done. And the Trump administration was saying, we're going to have this done before the end of the year, and we're going to have vaccines ready to go by then. Uh, it turns out he was right, and the others were wrong. Uh, and it's, I don't know that people realize how remarkable that is. The media are just beginning to pick up on this. I'm hearing increasing stories of, of peop, media people saying, you know, it's really remarkable that just last January or February, the companies started on these vaccines, and now we're up to well over uh, 1.5 million people just a year later being vaccinated on a daily basis. It is remarkable, and I think it attests to the private sector and what we were able to do. Um, almost all of the credit, I would argue, goes to um, the private sector and to Operation Warp Speed. That was President Trump's program to try to oversee these things and make them go through. Now, the government in the U.S. did not make the vaccine. That was it, They did in China, it did in Russia, but it did not here. But they did work with the private sector companies in order to be able to get those drugs developed. And um, it, it, it remarkable. So why is it so rare that we could get a new vaccine up and running uh, or any prescription drug for that matter, in less than a year. Well, normally it takes roughly 10 to 12 years to create a new prescription drug. Uh, you and I have been working on this and talking to the companies for some time, and it takes a long time to do it. Why would it take 10 to 12 years? Well, first off, they have to identify a problem they want to work on. Uh, they then have to go and identify a molecule they think will have some kind of impact on that problem in some way or the other, on that medical condition. They then run through initial tests where they're using computer simulations and so forth to try to find out, do these work? And then once they get something that they think may work, they have to develop it into a drug uh, of some kind, whether it's a pill or injectable or something of that nature. 
And then they have to go through what we call the, the clinical trials. The Food and Drug Administration requires that these drugs go through clinical trials, phase one, phase two, and phase three, uh, in order to be approved. And then you, you send all that data that you gather from these trials and you send it to the Food and Drug Administration, and then the FDA votes on whether or not they want to approve the drug. You know, we should not gloss over something you just mentioned a second ago, which is the idea of using computer modeling, because that's mm-hmm. relatively new. It is. Right? I mean, the use of big data and, and heavy computer processing to run simulation. So, uh, you know, I don't know really when that became mainstream, but that is at least one factor that, may make us optimistic about being able to shorten some of these times in the future, right? Right. And, and then, of course, in phase one, they just that's usually for safety. So they'll take the new drug, they'll try it on a small number of people, maybe five or ten, uh, and see if it's safe for them to take it. Then in phase two, they usually expand it, still a small, small number of people, but they're going to try to see if it's both safe and effective and what uh, what dose might be the best one for the uh, to produce the best effect. And then in phase three, they tend to go to very large trials. Sometimes these can be have 2,000, 3,000 people in there. They're oftentimes randomized. Uh, sometimes there's a placebo involved or there is the standard of care, what they normally provide versus, some, versus the, uh, the new drug. And all of those things just take time going through multiple academic centers, medical academic centers and so forth. It just takes a long time, and then once they get the results on that, they send it off to the FDA. And we shouldn't gloss over how many failures there are. There's a lot of failures at the beginning. There's not as many as you go through, but uh, they can uh, several thousand uh, various molecules or efforts there can fail before they finally get one they think goes is going to work. And then as they go through the trials, they may find out it just wasn't as safe as they had hoped may not be as effective as they had hoped. So the drug companies actually fail a lot in these as they're trying to get it up and through approval. We should probably um, also um, sort of explain, you, you just mentioned both safety and efficacy. efficacy, right? And we should probably talk a bit about that, right? Because right. because it's not just the job of the F, the FC, the FDA has taken on the job of making sure drugs are not just safe, but also effective. Right. And of course there are some who have argued that the FDA's mission should simply be limited to safety. That's exactly right. And And initially it was right. So they have expanded sort of their mission has creeped. And now when you talk about a drug failing, Mm -hmm. it may be perfectly safe. Right. Right. That's not the failure. The failure is that it may be only, you know, in 40% of cases or 30% of cases have it has any efficacy. Which raises the issue is if you are one of the 30 or 40% that it actually helps. Right. And, uh, and, and you would benefit from that, but the FDA were to, was to decide we're not going to approve this because not enough people are benefited from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the question comes about, really, should you be making that call? Right. And this is one of the things, I mean, this is maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, but this is one of the things that sort of um, disturbs me because we now know because of DNA and genetic science that sometimes a drug will help one person with one genetic profile and not another person with a different genetic profile, right? So how many of these molecules in the past have been rejected because they weren't deemed to be efficacious enough? But it might, they might have been life-changing or life-saving for certain people with certain genetic profiles, you know? And, and just on the flip side of that, just as some will help some with a genetic, certain genetic makeup, not others, 
it also will hurt some right. with a certain genetic makeup. Yeah, exactly. Which is why, as they're looking at it, we've seen as these vaccines have been put into millions of people around the world so far, there have been relatively few reactions to that. Some have been severe, but it's just a very, very, very small percentage of it. And yet the FDA and the countries tend to focus a lot on that rather than on the uh, the benefits all on. So that's why it takes, I mean, it takes 10 to 12 years to get a new drug from what I call inception to ingestion. And there's a lot of failures along the way. And as they spend money on that, that's one of the reasons why it costs so much to develop a new one. But there's also the cost factor. Now, Joe DeMasi, Dr. Joe DeMasi, an economist at Tufts University, is the one who's considered uh, sort of the, the country's leading expert on how much it costs to produce a drug. And he, uh, he frequently releases a, his estimates. He gets big grants. He'll look at dozens, if not 100 drugs. He'll trace them from the beginning to the end and so forth. And he'll look at the cost to develop those. And his latest assessment, pre-tax, out-of-pocket, uh, per approval for a new drug is about $1.4 billion, and that's in 2013 dollars. So about $1.4 billion. He adds, he also adds a provision in there which says, well, what if the companies use that money to just, say, put it over here in an account and gain interest or something? Well, economists will look at that as, a, as opportunity cost, right. and when he does that, he put, it bumps it up to about $2.5 billion. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, well, nah, that's not really fair. You're, you're investing it here and you hope to make some money. But that's, that's where so if people hear it costs $2.5 or $2.6 billion to develop a new drug, that's where that comes from. Well, one way or the other, it's in the neighborhood of $2 billion. Yes. Right? It's, 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 <laughs> uh, one way or the other, it's really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we don't get a huge grant to do that. So we did our own estimate and, and have d- tracked it several times over the past seven or eight years. And what I did to do this was I just said, well, uh, we know how many drugs are approved by the FDA every year. We have that. That's a hard number. And we know how much the drug companies claim in research and development spending on their tax forms. That's a hard number. And so I went and looked at it and I put it in there. And uh, if uh, so, you can just divide the number of drugs uh, approved in a year by the amount of money research and develop they spent that year. Because the number of drugs coming out can vary. It can be 21 year and 40 the next year. I do it over a 10 year and kind of average it out so you can get a, a rough estimate. And it comes out to about $1.6 billion. Okay, there you go. And and, and this is, would include the research and development they spend after they uh, post-development. Uh, so it actually works out to be just about the same as what he had suggested. Now, we should also point out, I think, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but when, when this, let's just take, let's just say $2 billion ballpark, right? Mm-hmm. That's for a successful approved drug. Right. So this underscores, does it not, the point that the, the few drugs that actually make it all the way through the process and are approved actually also have to pay for all the R&D costs on all the other molecules that didn't pan out. Exactly right. And that's why our approach makes that very clear because we're dividing the number of approved drugs into the total research and development costs. So, right. uh, for instance, Pfizer went for years trying to develop an Alzheimer's drug and four or five years ago decided they would just they had invested so much money, no success, they were pulling out of it. Whereas Lilly, Eli Lilly came up and said, we're still going to work on Alzheimer's. Everybody would love to see an Alzheimer's drug, right? but it's been really hard, and the companies have invested a lot of money, and that money has to ultimately be picked up by those drugs that are successful. And some people might look at that as, well, that's not fair because, you know, this prescription that I'm buying 
I'm, I'm having to pay this high price for it because it's subsidizing all those failed drugs. But you don't know what molecules are going to pan out, which ones aren't going to pan out, right? right. So, I mean, the, the, the companies have to take those risks. They have to have a whole portfolio of things that they're researching. And it's not unlike, you know, if you have a stock portfolio, you don't know which of your stocks is going to be successful and which ones are going to fail. You have mm-hmm. to be diversified. And so we also learn if a particular molecule didn't work out or was not effective, it's not like we don't learn that lesson, right? I mean, we did we did gain that knowledge, even if it didn't result in a successful drug. And this is true in almost any business. A, a, a retail store is going to have a certain amount of theft. The cost of that theft gets ultimately filtered into the cost of the products that they are that they sell if mm-hmm. it's going to stay open. So yes, companies um, will take in their losses and they filter that into the products that do sell, and that uh, allows them to continue on. And so we've discussed why it takes so long, and why it costs so much. So how did the drug companies get the COVID-19 vaccine done so fast? Well, there were several things. First off, uh, for instance, the FDA allowed companies to cut some of the red tape that they impose upon it. And that became a political issue because Donald Trump was president at the time, and, and Democrats said, well, you're, 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 you're not ensuring that these are going to be safe and effective. And the company said, no, 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 we're not bypassing anything. We're just allowed, we're just being uh, allowed to cut some red tape and move faster. Right. It's not like Trump was cooking up the vaccine in the basement of the White House. Right. That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, Kamala Harris at the time said she wasn't going to take any vaccine that was produced during the Trump administration. Exactly. And, and it, it, it conveyed this false impression somehow that Donald Trump was whipping up the vaccine as opposed to these pharmaceutical companies. And, and the second thing is you want to make sure that the drugs that they're being developed are safe and efficacious, but, but bureaucracies tend to have add additional time and efforts to this. And that's in part because the drug company and the patients have a different interest in this than the bureaucracies. So the drug companies and the patients, they want to see the drug created and developed and uh, administered as quickly as possible at the lowest possible price. But bureaucrats have a a whole different set of uh, interest involved here. If a drug gets through and they find out that it harms more people than they thought, there's a few uh, bad uh, instances there, then then people look at the FDA and say, well, you just didn't do your due diligence in overseeing this. So bureaucrats have this sort of pressure on them to make sure that this thing is done in a slow, methodical process and that it is perfectly safe as at least as much as they can tell. Well, I think that's a really important point. I mean, we, we do want, I think, some regulatory authority uh, governing these drug development projects. But on the other hand, this point that bureaucrats have a completely different incentive than patients have. Yes, they do. Know, I mean, and, and this sort of reminds me of the right to try movement and the right to try legislation, right? I mean, if you're dying from some condition or if you're suffering greatly from some condition, uh, you're probably willing to tolerate a high degree of risk right. just on the on on the off chance that this might actually work for you. But the bureaucrats have exactly the opposite incentive, right? They want to eliminate as much risk as possible so that they don't get criticized and don't get blamed. And you see this in the drug trials. You know, I sat on a medical school's review board that oversaw various types of medical trials uh, at the university, at the medical school. And so you, if you have a, if say, for instance, a new drug or new medical device, you have something over here and you want to do it against a placebo, something that doesn't have any effect, 
all the patients want the real thing, even though we don't know whether the real drug is actually going to harm them more than help them. You don't always know that. And yet the patients wanted to be in the one that has the effective one. And I know, I know people right now who are in drug trials and they want to make sure that they're doing anything they can to say, can, am I in the one that's right. really got the, right. the medicine and not the placebo? Yep. That's part of what, uh, that's part of the incentives that go on in people's minds. And yet bureaucrats are less tolerant of that and they're more cautious for several reasons. If problems arise, it comes back to haunt them. They aren't necessarily, their lives aren't necessarily on the line. And so they, uh, they just have that difference in it. Now, it strikes me that these um, government-imposed delays and drug approvals seem to ebb and flow. I remember when I first came to work at IPI, the very first paper I ever edited was on FDA drug approval. Mm-hmm. And the point of the paper was complaining about how long it takes to get a drug through the approval process. And my recollection is that in subsequent years, there was some streamlining of regulations that, and the time to approval actually shortened a bit and people sort of saw that as a regulatory success. But it kind of seems like things have gone back <laughs> back <laughs> to the bad old days with the exception of you know the COVID-19 vaccine. It seems like we've, we've gone back to the point where there's so many bureaucratic hurdles that it just takes much too long for a new drug to come to market. So what lessons can we learn from the COVID-19 vaccine success? First, Uh, New cutting-edge, life-saving drugs can be developed quickly and without a lot of money, uh, but bureaucracy has to be restrained in order to do that. That doesn't mean, as you're suggesting, that we want want companies bypassing, not doing the appropriate test, but we have to make sure that bureaucracy doesn't live up to its name of being a bureaucracy, in essence, stifling this innovation and development when it needs to be moving forward. Secondly, it costs a lot to produce new drugs, but it probably, it costs more the longer it takes. And so when people say, well, this takes so long, you know, and you, you spend so much money. Well, if I'm doing this over a 10 year period, it takes a lot of money. Uh, I, it, it costs a lot of money to get these new uh, COVID-19 vaccines out, but you know, they had they, the two mRNA vaccines they had those actually sort of ready to go. They'd been working on them for years, and they had the concept ready to go quickly. And within a few days, they were ready to start putting this thing together and trying to actually develop the vaccine. But you, um, uh, the more we, the more bureaucracy we add, not only the longer time, but also the additional cost. Number three, private sector drug companies um, are a real asset to the U.S. They can. Uh, we need those companies here. And I bring this up because um, President Joe Biden is saying we want to have companies here, but we want to try to make sure that they're paying higher taxes. We want to make sure that they're doing this, that, and the other, that they're having labor contracts and other things of that nature. All the things, many of the things that Joe Biden wants to do would actually drive, actually drive companies, not just drug companies, offshore. Uh, one of the, some of the things that President Trump did with the tax reform and other things attracted companies back here. So we want to have those companies here on site in the U.S. making the drugs. They pay high, <laughs> they pay good salaries. They are the leading cutting edge technology out there. And we want them here developing it. And one of the reasons why we were able to get our drugs sooner than other countries is because those countries are, those companies are based here. Both Pfizer and Moderna 
are based here and they feel a certain obligation working with the government, which was willing to fund them, to make sure that those drugs are going to be here for American patients. So I think that's a key issue. Well, let me add one more point here that I think is interesting because one of the policies that we work on here at IPI is intellectual property policy. And a lot of times there's criticism of the drug companies because of the patents that they have on these drugs. And the idea is that the patents somehow stifle competition, right? Well, that sure has not been the case in the case of the COVID-19 vaccine, right? Because, you know, we've got at least three or four different vaccines using slightly different technologies Mm -hmm. that are available right now in the United States. They're all patented, but they're also all competing with each other, right? So I think it's worth underscoring this point that just because something is patented doesn't mean that it's a monopoly. You know, you literally have, even though these are early days, you literally have like a form of choice, like, you know, which vaccine do you want to take? And I imagine states actually, we're probably not far from when state purchasing will literally be able to say, well, we'll, we'll buy whichever vaccine gives us the best price or Mm -hmm. the best deal or whatever. So I do think it's an important point to make that just because a molecule or a treatment is patented, it doesn't mean they have some exclusive right to the whole category of disease. So to wrap up, we live in a country where some politicians and the left demonize the drug industry. They have just demonized them for several years as being for-profiting, profiting off uh, people's health and sickness and so forth. Um, the, we want the drug companies here because they, are li- they create life-saving drugs, and there are new drugs in the pipeline that will address a number of uh, medical conditions that we've never thought they would be able to address. And so we need a situation in where we have the right tax policies and the right regulatory policies to ensure the drug companies can thrive in the United States of America. Well, Dr. Matthews, thank you very much. Uh, You can find more about healthcare and prescription drug policy at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.